This is the All-Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care podcast. You can find more information and additional podcast episodes at professionalpalliativehub.com. Hello, you are very welcome to this Early Career Researcher Forum podcast. The Early Career Research Forum was launched by the All-Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care 10 years ago now. This multidisciplinary forum is central to the Institute's aim of harnessing a strategic approach to palliative care research and knowledge development in Ireland. The All-Ireland Institute supports the Early Career Research Forum by facilitating collaboration and through the forum members have the opportunity to access peer support, develop links with senior researchers, participate in capacity building educational initiatives, share resources and knowledge transfer across disciplines. So today I am delighted to be joined by Una Malloy, ANP in palliative care for older people in St. Francis Hospice, Blanchardstown. And uh, I'm very impressed by reading your profile, Una, around your PhD work and other research you've engaged with uh, throughout your career to date. So we'd be really interested in hearing about your current role to start, Una, if you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself, uh, your current um, job description and how you're finding it so far, including the challenges and all. Thank you, Una. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to, uh, to talk to you today and hope uh, it'll be some inspiration and some help to early researchers, which I still consider myself to be. Uh, so currently I'm working as an advanced nurse practitioner in older person palliative care. And that very much was built on my research. Um, I spent quite a bit of time trying to develop this role based on the work that I did in my PhD. And uh, going back even before the PhD, there was a project that St. Francis Hospice got funding for to look at end of life care processes. And we particularly used the term end of life care processes in long term care settings. And they looked for a project nurse for that. And I applied for it. I just finished my master's at the time. And that was back in about 2008. And I spent time looking at, you know, end of life care in nursing homes. They were HSE nursing homes. And, and I began to feel that, you know, what we maybe understand in specialist palliative care versus what's reality in nursing homes was quite different. And that older people, you know, had lots of chronic illness and comorbidities, began to realize that they had very different palliative care needs to what we might be used to on specialist palliative care teams. I was very fortunate. I presented a poster and I suppose this goes back to the piece about the importance of disseminating your work and making sure that whatever you do, that you, you know, develop an abstract, get posters out there and get talking to people who will be interested in what you're doing. Because I can honestly say that was how I got to where I am today. So I presented a poster at um, EAPC in Glasgow. And when I was at the poster, it was a poster based on my work around the end of life care settings. And it was um, just a presentation of the work. And it was actually looking at the role of medication and symptom assessment in end of life care. And this person came up to speak with me and she was uh, very interested in my work. And she asked me, was it action research, which I'll talk about later on. And I didn't know what action research was. And I said, gosh, I, I don't know. It's just a project I'm doing. Anyway, after we spoke for a while, as she was leaving, I introduced myself and it turns out that she was Joe Hockley. So anybody who knows um, uh, anything about palliative care for older people, Joe Hockley is like the, the queen. She has an OBE for her work in palliative care for older people. She said to me, would you like to come and talk to me about it more? 
and she invited me to meet her in St. Christopher's Hospice in London. And I met her and she told me that I should do a PhD. And I was thinking, uh, I don't think she knows me. Uh, I'm not PhD material, but she was incredible and she made me believe that I could do it. So that began my journey to PhD. And then uh, within a very short time later, about Two and a half years later, I started the PhD and I looked specifically at how palliative care is understood in older person residential care. So then I suppose bringing me to my role today, when I finished it, I kind of felt very strongly that I didn't want my piece of research to just sit on a shelf and, you know, gather dust. Um, And I did do some teaching. I love teaching, but I didn't feel teaching full time was for me. So I wrote a proposal that we develop an advanced nurse practice role. And I have to say that it took a little bit of time, but the support of my nurse managers and my palliative care consultants, in particular, uh, Professor Karen Ryan, this role became a reality. So I'm a real maybe example of that, you know, theory practice gap in action that we've actually managed to build together. So bringing the theory into practice and um, yeah, I'm very excited about that. That is fascinating and really inspirational to hear you talk because it started with networking and uh, absolutely yeah and you're you're alluding to taking research off the shelf and competencies off the shelf and sharing research however big or small is really yeah I suppose what we're all about in the early career research forum so it's the agenda of the All Ireland Institute so that's that's really important and I suppose they're inextricably linked really aren't they the yes. education and research you know and not everybody sees themselves as an educator or a researcher but you can yeah. be a bit of both at the same time so it's, yeah. it's it's really fascinating how the role evolved and uh the I suppose the bedrock of that being good communication and and oh. networking with others so. I think networking um is essential because sometimes you feel you're on an island if you don't share your ideas with somebody and say look I'm thinking about this you know we can be so bogged down in our clinical work um, and an idea can come to our minds but we think gosh I just don't have time but if you can get a like-minded person on board um and and you do find people you just I I think when we stand back and we realize if we have a question in our minds or if something is niggling us, then that's the opportunity to learn some more. And, you know, I can honestly say I still have imposter syndrome. I still think someone's going to take that PhD away from me. I can honestly say now that I'm so pleased I did it. It was a fantastic journey and I learned so much and nobody can take that away. It was hard. But when you find something you're passionate about, there's no reason why you can't go for it. Absolutely. Where there's a will, there's a way. And you've really yeah. demonstrated that through your work. And I think, as you say, being inquisitive, having a curious mind, yeah. you know, you, you ask questions and then you'll beg yourself to answer them. Yeah. I might go into the challenges you face around your PhD in a little while, but just picking up on something you said, Una, about you know you're, you're on the ground working when you describe the reality in nursing homes and the reality yeah. of what it's like in the community caring for the older person yeah. with complex needs you know no yeah. two patients are the same and yeah. I think it, it would be remiss to dismiss the population projections and the multimorbidity we're facing in, in the near decades to come. Yeah. And I think that particularly with the projection of um, 
the aging population in Ireland, we really have a responsibility to address these needs. And I suppose I used action research. So I engaged for six months quite closely with two of my research sites. And by the time I finished there, I really felt like, gosh, we have a real understanding here. You know, this is great. We're all singing from the same hymn sheet. And then, you know, six months later, back in my clinical work, going to a different maybe residential care unit, I realized that that wasn't the reality at all. You know, that there was so much work to be done. And I think that, you know, in my work, I looked a lot at the the impact of relationships, you know, and I think that when we're talking about um, long term care, you know, the relationship that staff have with residents quite different to what you'd have when you're going to see somebody perhaps on a, a weekly or monthly basis when you're in the community palliative care team, for example. And I think that relationship does affect how you see the resident, how you can make decisions around them. Now, acknowledging that there is a large turnover of staff, there still is a great connection amongst a lot of residents and staff that make it difficult. You know, there's a whole issue around how do we support the staff to identify that a resident is dying. But relationships do impact. And I think that there's there's that relationship between the staff and the resident. There's a relationship between staff and family. And, you know, there's a lot of literature out there to say that families, you know, mistrust staff and long-term care the first six months they come back they check they want to make sure everything is okay but also the relationships between the staff that impacts how they support each other in caring for the residents and I do think that sometimes maybe we don't take that into consideration so for example one of the themes out of my research the main themes the overall themes that described the concepts in understanding palliative care and it was actually came up from one of my um, cooperative inquiry groups was living, loving and letting go. And I think that's a beautiful way to describe, you know, the the experience of palliative care in long term residential care, that living, loving and letting go, that it is about living, that 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 mostly it's about people who, you know, are going about their daily lives, you know, transitioning to maybe losses, loss of independence, loss of loved ones, loss of their home, but that it is about living. And and even going back as far as when I did the first report on end of life care, we, we agreed that living was important. And when we talked about you know, hospice and palliative care, they were like, oh no, it'd be very depressing if we thought about palliative care here. And then the, you know, the loving, that kind of relationship where you connect with somebody. Now you obviously have to be willing to connect with somebody and not everybody has that, you know, very deep connection with people. But the letting go, that's another piece that's challenging and that maybe, you know, particularly in private nursing homes, one of my units was a private nursing home and one was a public. And yeah, I'll talk about challenges later on. So there's lots of complexities around even with relationships and then how do you have communicate how do you get people to talk about dying when they're really talking about living and there was an article written have um it's it's an old article it's about 2007 and in the article they describe that living on the edge of life in nursing homes and it's a really good article because it's that place of well where are we and how do we know when somebody is changing um you know very very good um there was a, another article that really I, I read. It was called A Decrepit Death, how they described, it was Margaret O'Connor. And she talks about death and older people. It's just, it's a horrible word, even decrepit, you know, but it's almost like, well, you know, you just kind of fade away and everything fails and that's it. So we have to do better than that. I like to think of older people as having, they should have a beautiful death after a life, you know, a beautiful life long lived and supported in that. And it doesn't matter if you're 99 or, you know, 70, that, you know, your dying is as intimate as anybody else's. And we should 
be able to talk about that. Absolutely. And within that huge mammoth challenge you've described that is multi-layered, there's a lot of opportunity. You know, I think you yes. describe very nicely how perhaps our eyes aren't open to death and dying a lot of the time. But also there's, you know, I suppose acknowledging death isn't always negative that, you know, everybody's yes. going to, to come to that uh, phase in their yes. life, the terminal phase. And, you know, a lot of centres and facilities can be... Um, fearful of death and fearful of the dying yeah. things and see it as a failure but we need to acknowledge that yeah. you know optimizing the terminal phase and yeah. and doing what we can to make that a dignified death is is our role and yeah. uh, the first step to that is acknowledging uh, the dying phase yeah i think we have to be open to those conversations that you know acknowledging the losses is really important you know um you know, my dad died last year, he was 99. And he didn't want to die because he loved his grandchildren. He loved his daughters, he loved everybody. And I always just try and remember that, that just because somebody comes to a number doesn't mean that that's it, you've expired, you know, so that you don't have feelings or losses. And that it might be your grandchildren, it might be your great grandchildren. But I think we deserve everybody the opportunity to discuss that and ask them how they feel about it if if we get the opportunity um and for me i suppose it's all about always learning every day i realize there's so much more i don't know and i think that you know i suppose with my research hat on i have questions every day and i think gosh i would love to look at that <laughs> loads of questions and more questions Absolutely. than answers that's, that's what happens isn't it um, could I do a deeper dive, Una, into, I suppose, any stumbling blocks in your research path or your research journey? Um, because yeah. in particular, I think early career researchers or any researchers, for that matter, listening would be interested in hearing of others' experience because it's it's not always uh, a rosy walk yeah. in the park, um, as you well know. So we'd be interested yeah. to, to hear what you have to say about that, Una. Yeah, um, I suppose the big thing is always funding. You know, funding is always a really big um, inhibitor to doing further research. And I was fortunate that I I got some funding through the HSE that um, was allocated to St. Francis because of the work that I had done on the end of life um, project. The HSE agreed that they would, you know, fund some further work on this. And I suppose that the challenge is that, you know, when somebody funds you, then it was interesting. Well, they, they actually gave the money to St. Francis to, to use to develop this further. So they, you know, so it basically went towards my my PhD. But, you know, in the beginning, then people wanted you to change your research question. And I think that that's one of the things that's for me in the beginning was very hard because I approached a number of possible supervisors and I they just didn't fit. So one person I went to every time I came away from them, I came away with a different question and it didn't sit with me. You know, I came away kind of feeling anxious because even though I didn't really know what my question was, I knew it wasn't that. So I think choosing your supervisor is really important. Um, I think really thinking what you want to ask and think what you want to do. I knew I wanted to do something about palliative care for older people in nursing homes, but how I was going to frame that, you know, and I suppose finally after meeting a number of supervisors, I met, I met two people that I fitted with and they were Phil Larkin and Amanda Phelan. And uh, so I went to UCD and at the end of first year then UCD, um, change the rule you could only have one supervisor so I had to choose one which was awful to have to suddenly decide well I have to let one of you go 
And I suppose that that's hard as a student to say like, right, and you're going to fire one of your supervisors. But anyway, you know, I think that's really important that you make choices. I think the other thing that, you know, is challenging is really think about your research, really think about your methodology, really think about, you know, use the methodology that makes sense to you, that gives you what you want, that gives you the answers that are going to be meaningful to the question you started out with. Um, and, you know, I am not a statistics person, so you'd never find me with statistics and numbers. I would be a disaster. So I knew straight away it wasn't going to be a quantitative piece of research. And as you can see, I can talk. So qualitative would, would fit. Um, and then I found myself doing action research because action research for me meant that I was working on something that was meaningful to a group of people that we were looking at it from the experiences of the researchers. So my researchers were co-inquirers. We worked together. Every decision we made, we made together. And so, you know, whatever happened in one group brought us to the next group and we had to make sense of that. And every decision we made was made in that group. And in the context of the units I worked in, that did bring about a change in the unit there. Really also think through, I mentioned earlier about the complications I made for myself in, I picked two sites. I picked a public uh, residential care and a private one. And to this day, I really can't tell you why I did that. Um, my inclusion criteria was that the um, they had to have more than 100 beds because I wanted to ensure that they would have a certain number of deaths that would make my work you know credible because I was going to review every death that occurred so every death that occurred in a six-month period I reviewed so I wanted to make sure I had enough deaths so I made the unit size bigger so that excluded quite a number of units so also you know when you're very enthusiastic about research you imagine everybody's going to run to be part of it and then you send out the invitations and you don't get any replies and that's also like that's just so destroying. So when I got two people who replied, one public and one private, I said, great, that's perfect. I suppose that frustrated me near the end and one unit participated much more actively than the other unit. Um, one unit really embraced me as a researcher and, you know, in action researcher, always struggling with that outsider, insider piece. And, you know, I was an outsider, of course, because I, you know, was from outside the organization, but I was an insider because I was a nurse and I had, you know, experience of caring for people and I had an interest in older people. So there was lots of insider, outsider kind of, dilemmas throughout the whole thing um I suppose yeah I probably complicated things a little bit for myself but look at the end of the day I got through it and you know the other challenge is um you know time I suppose really make sure when you start off on a research project that you really try and stick to your timelines um I mean, I'm very fortunate. I have a, a very busy family life. I have four kids as well. So whenever I had a deadline, I always put that deadline four weeks sooner because I never wanted to go straight to the deadline because I was afraid I wouldn't make it if somebody got sick or something happened, you know. Um, I'm sure juggling that was a big challenge in itself, you know, busy home yeah. life, family life. You're a, a mother, a wife. Yeah, well, I will tell you something funny. Um, just in case anybody thinks it's plain sailing, you know, when I did my transfer assessment, I failed. <laughs> I didn't get through the first transfer assessment because my examiners felt that I didn't have my research question clear enough and that uh, they weren't a lover of action research and they felt that I um, hadn't presented it with enough kind of confidence that I knew what I was doing, which was absolutely true. Um, so I had to come home and redo it Um represent it and that comes at the end of first year in UCD where you transfer from the kind of master strand over to the PhD strand 
And and to be honest, I was devastated because I kind of thought, you see, they found me out. This was never going to happen. You know, I should never have done this. I'm really embarrassed now. I'm going to have to tell everybody that I got thrown out of college and um, I went home to my kids and I was crying. I hate to tell you this. I was crying. And the next thing my kids called me in and my oldest at the time was uh, probably about 15 and he was the spokesperson for them all and he said I, I told him I was giving up that it wasn't worth it anymore that it was too much time and you know there were more important things and they told me that their mom wasn't a giver upper and they um, said that they would do everything they could to make sure I went back well of course then I was crying again because you know then I'm like oh my god like they think their mother just gives up so they actually were my <laughs> motivation to keep going and I have to say the emotional roller coaster oh it was an emotional roller coaster and you know you have to be practical about it you have to um there are loads of sacrifices and I did make sacrifices and I suppose the person that most missed out on things who not missed out rather but who who wrecked themselves was me because I made every effort to make sure I did all the things that were expected of me plus everything else so I was the one who was wrecked and I probably could have been easier on myself and mm-hmm. um, I don't regret it and I am really 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 happy I had the opportunity to do this because yeah I can't tell you what it means to me it means the world mm-hmm. um you know, it's fantastic. I can't believe I did it, actually. So absolutely huge. Congratulations. Huge Goshka. And I think that message in itself is really, really powerful. You know that you're going to be your hardest critic and, you know, yeah, blocks will be encountered along the way. And I, I would imagine it's, you know, not uncommon for researchers at any stage of their career to be halfway through a project and realize, oh, I've gone about it the wrong way. Oh, and yeah. Do I keep going or do I reverse yeah. or do I stop? Yeah. And want to really just yeah. tear the whole thing up so yeah well done for for persevering and well done yeah. to your family for motivating you to continue and to, to see success at the end of it yeah I will I will also say uh, one one other thing in relation to the the thesis you know when you come to your viva and suddenly you find yourself at this viva um in some ways driving out from my viva that morning I just wanted to do it. I was like, come on, bring it on, you know. And I remember somebody saying to me, remember, it's your work. No matter what question they ask you, it's your work. Mm-hmm. And you interpret it and all you have to do is defend what you said and did. And that was great advice because there are academics who will always have a different slant on things, a different knowledge, a different ability. Um, but it's your work. So you have to own it, really own it. But, you know, afterwards, then you get corrections to do and then you're doing the corrections and you're delighted. Like when they told me, you know, we're happy to award you the degree. I was so overwhelmed. It was just fantastic. I was happy, like happy. But going back to the corrections was hard. So I would Mm -hmm. say anybody who finds themselves in that position, don't lose heart, because I actually started to hate my work rereading it again. And when I was doing the corrections, I suddenly started to think, hmm. I shouldn't have done that. I should have changed that. That should have been different. I don't like the way that's written. You could nearly start doing it all over again, which mm-hmm. you have to mm-hmm. just do what you're asked. But, you know, they can be hard to do if you find yourself in that position. But just do what you're asked and don't worry about the rest. And, and striving for absolute perfection can be really people's downfall, can't it? And yeah. as you say, no one knows the work as well as you do when you've done it yourself. So, yeah, um, yeah huge congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a very rewarding area, as you say, oh, now, yeah. we're all, you know, um, invested in it. And it's it really, there's a, a spirit of learning and yeah. uh, the interest in research can kind of keep us energized yeah, along the way. Yeah, absolutely. 
absolutely. Well, I think um, it's been really, really interesting to chat to you. And I know we could talk all day. <laughs> so it's, it's lovely to have you on. Yeah. I think you've included so much really, really great food for thought and great insights, Una. So we, we thank you for being with us today for the yeah. podcast. And our listeners will truly enjoy uh, hearing your experiences. Um, a lot of messages there. Thank you so much. Good. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. I'm delighted. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the All-Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care podcast. You can find more information and additional podcast episodes at professionalpalliativehub.com.